And the, the title of what I've prepared is The Final and Perfect Sacrifice. And to begin, I want each of us to consider how do we, as Bible-believing, blood-washed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, act or react when we find ourselves fallen into sin? Do we walk out in the truth that our sins are forgiven? If we confess our failures, that the Lord is just and faithful to forgive us? Or do we rather carry with us a shame? Do we feel that we can't shake what we've done somehow? Or worse, do we ignore our failings and pretend that they didn't actually happen? And I confess to you this morning that when I have allowed myself to fall short, often my reaction is that of a scared child who expects an overbearing father to punish me severely for my committed offense. I find myself scattered in my thoughts, my emotions and my actions, sometimes trying to put the Lord out of my mind as a way to ignore my failings, and sometimes wanting to do something in my own strength to make it all better. There's a a real sense of separation from the Father when I've fallen short, and I want to atone in my own strength very frequently. In my natural state, I feel as if the Lord is tired of my repeated failings. And at some point, he's going to say, you know what, Brian? I've tried. But I'm done. You're, you're not going to get it. So let's stop wasting your time, and let's stop wasting my time, and let's just go ahead and turn you over. I feel as if the Lord is furious with me. And it's just a matter of time before he throws in the towel and removes his grace. But I want to consider what the scripture actually teaches about this. And I hope that this will be an encouragement to you. Sorry for that. And that we will be able to walk in truth and in light and in grace. And to to explore this, I want to look at the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant and contrast that with the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he completed on the cross. And at the risk of getting too technical, I want to define the differences between two different types of sacrifice. Both of these required by the Lord, but only one of them being a completed work. When it comes to sacrifices made in biblical history, each of them falls into one of two types. And these being titled expiation and propitiation. The word propitiation is found a few times within the scriptures, but expiation is not. And from the best that I can gather, the word expiation was coined in the 1500s as a way to describe the sacrificial system um, prior to the Lord and his coming. Webster's 1828 defines the words this way, expiation, the the act of atoning for a crime, 
the act of making satisfaction for an offense by which the guilt is done away with and the obligation of the offended person to punish the crime is canceled. And then propitiation, excuse me, the act of appeasing wrath and conciliating the favor of the offended person. In theology, the atonement or atoning sacrifice to God to assuage his wrath and render him propitious to sinners. Christ is the propitiation for the sins of men, referencing Romans 1 and 1 John 2. And what I want to pay attention, excuse me, what I want us to pay attention to today is the appeasing of wrath. As I assume we're all familiar, under the Old Covenant, there was a system of ritual sacrifice that took place over many years. Some of these sacrifices were mandatory, and some were voluntary. The requirement for these sacrifices took on different forms, sometimes grain and oil, sometimes wine, but very frequently it was the blood of an animal of some kind. And in every case, there were explicit instructions about the given type of offering, the method in which it was to be offered. And if you look into the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you can find more of these. But I'll read you uh, an excerpt out of Exodus 29 to give you an example. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall take also from the fat of the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the river, excuse me, the long lobe of the liver and two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the right thigh for this, for it is the ram of ordination. And one, of the, and one loaf of the bread and one cake of the bread made with oil and one wafer of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you should put all of these on the palms of Aaron and the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar and on the top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. And the instructions continue. This is what portion the priests may eat. That is the portion that must be burned, etc. And what I'm trying to illustrate here is that the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant, the instructions were lengthy. They were very specific in their requirements, and they represented a significant expense of time and effort for those who were offering the sacrifice. And in spite of all of this, every sacrifice performed under the Old Covenant was incomplete. Sacrifices under the Old Covenant were expiatory. 
They settled the debt, but that's where they stopped. The debt was paid, but the wrath of God was not abated. Whereas, when the Lord Jesus Christ was set forth as a propitiation to those who are in Christ, the wrath of God is no longer directed towards you, nor your shortcomings. I'd like to make a a bit of a modern example, which I think will help explain this. And so, let's suppose that on the way home from church today, Miriam and I are hit by a drunk driver, that my wife is killed, and my car is totaled. Under our, our system of law, that drunk driver is indebted to me. I will have been wronged by him, and he owes me. And just for this example, let's assume that this driver is fully insured. And so after I'm back on my feet, his insurance company will attempt to settle the debt to me. And as sick as this may sound, the insurance companies actually have a formula to place a monetary value on a human life. They would consider Miriam's age, her education, her work experience. They would assign a dollar amount to her per year and assume how long she would live and take that and calculate, okay, she's worth X number of dollars to Brian. And then they would say, okay, well, you're worth this for the, wife of, the life of your bride, this amount for your medical uh, bills, that amount for the, the value of your vehicle, and you are owed X number of dollars. And then they would cut me a check, and boom, I have been made whole. The insurance company would have expiated the debt that the drunk driver incurred to me. And assuming all this to have taken place, if that driver then, whose drunken negligence had killed my wife, would come to me and say, so, you got your check. We're good, right? Want to go party? He would find himself as the recipient of my full and undiluted wrath. By no means should this negligent murderer expect us to be able to enter into relationship. His debt would have been expiated to me, but my wrath would still be in place. And this is the reality for Israel under the old covenant and the old sacrificial system. They were to bring their offerings to the temple, and even with all of the intricate instructions they needed to follow, their sacrifices did nothing to satisfy the wrath of God. If you consider the sheer numbers of what was offered, if you consider the volume of blood in an animal, multiply that by the requirement for each of the people in Israel, and then multiply that by the number of people in Israel, you'll quickly recognize that the temple was a bloodbath. 
let alone the grain, the wine, the oil, all that was required. The magnitude of what was offered at the temple was Herculean. And yet, in spite of all this effort, the wrath of God was not abated. The wrath of God could only be satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ and the atoning work that was completed by him on the cross. You see, a propitiatory sacrifice both settles the debt and removes the wrath. And to those of you here this morning who are in Christ, the wrath of God is not directed towards you or to your failures. It was done away with by the work of our Savior. And so with this in mind, let's look at Romans chapter 3. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth, excuse me, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Consider what's being said here. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was simultaneously 100% man and 100% God, was set forth as a propitiation for our sins. God took upon himself the sin of mankind so that he could appease his own wrath and transform us who were willful and exuberant enemies of God into his beloved children. God took his own wrath upon himself so that it could be satisfied. Why? so that we could be called sons. After years and years of human effort, countless volumes of blood spilled, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect and blameless, willingly took upon himself every shortcoming you and I have or ever will have had. He allowed himself to be betrayed, tortured, murdered, so that you and I could freely enter into relationship with the Father. We may now boldly approach with our hopes and our fears, with our successes and with our failures, and with our desires, both positive and negative, and expect a kind, benevolent Father ready and willing to listen and to guide. This is the reality of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Brothers and sisters, this is the best news you will ever hear. The wrath of God of heaven is not directed to those who are in Christ. And so, when we find ourselves in sin, we must run to the Lord and not from him. As a result of my sin and in my natural state, I expect God to be angry. And when I go before him and confess what I've done, I expect he'll say, you did what? Again? But the reality is, when we confess our failings, we can expect him to say, I know. That's been a problem for you for some time. You need to do a better job guarding yourself. But let's pick you up. Let's brush you off. Let's put you on your feet. And let's start again. My Holy Spirit will be there to guide you. But you need to do a better job of listening. And then I can help you. The scriptures say that it is the goodness of God that call men unto repentance. And there is no greater good that the God of heaven and earth took upon himself the form of a man and took upon himself his own wrath so that adoption would be available to every man, woman, and child on the planet. Once understood, this will break your heart. And you will be filled with a desire to submit and obey to a loving father. Now, my concern is that what some of you may have heard me say this morning is, don't worry about your sin. So I want to be clear. That's not what I'm saying. We must hate our sin. We're called to do battle with our flesh. We must declare war on our sinful natures with no quarter. If you are able to sin with no qualms, you should be very afraid. Because a born again, follower of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, cannot sin without remorse. However, let us also not heed the lies of the enemy, who when we fail, delights in saying, the Lord hates your sin and you. Because it's just not true. Paul writes again in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ is a mystery that I don't think we will completely understand until we stand in glory, praising him forever. But be encouraged. He has removed the wrath of God towards the believer. And if you were in Christ this morning, the Lord is working for your good and calls you his own son. And so in closing, I'd like to finish where we began with this question. How do we react to our own failures? Do we ignore them? Do we try to work our way back into grace? Do we fear the Lord is angry with us? Let us rather run quickly to the Father, confess our failures, and walk forward in the reality that he is quick to mercy and slow to anger. And the work has been completed, and grace will empower us to victory over our sinful natures. Let us keep in mind something that Charles Spurgeon once wrote. As a bird cannot exhaust the air in the sky, nor a fish exhaust the water in the sea, neither can we exhaust the grace of God. May God bless you.